Welcome to Only Trying to Help, the podcast where we try to help you help other people. My name is Dr. Kate Watson, and I'm flying solo again today, mostly because I introduced a topic last week to which I want to circle back. In fact, this episode will be part two of a three-part series on well-meaning activism and advocacy. I'm hoping you joined me last week when we talked about some ways that well-meaning activists or advocates sometimes go wrong. Uh, Just as a recap, we said sometimes advocates or activists deny that they have power or privilege, and then when they do that, they miss out on an opportunity to leverage that power for good. Sometimes people are so committed to being, quote, good that they fail to see their own flaws, their biases, mistakes, and their own oppressive behaviors. We like to say to ourselves, nah, I'm one of the good ones. That's a problem too. Sometimes well-meaning activists try to wear all the hats. They try to educate, mobilize, organize, serve others, do acts of rebellion and protest, and the list goes on and on. It's certainly well-meaning, but trying to do everything might leave you feeling like you've really accomplished nothing at all. And last week we spoke about finding the right hat for you and wearing it well. Finally, we spoke about people who want to make a change in the world, but they're not really sure when and where to speak up and raise their voices. We unpacked that a little bit, but probably not enough. In fact, that sort of leads me to this week's topic. We're going to get really specific about the tools at your disposal. The most important thing to know is what you're trying to achieve. If you don't know what the job is, you cannot choose a tool. If your goal is to reduce symbolic reminders of racism, then it's probably a good use of your time to fight for the removal of racist monuments around the world. But if your goal is to reduce workplace discrimination, well, then there's a better tool for you to use. If your goal is to educate your own friends and family members about things like, I don't know, sexism or classism, for example, then it might be a good idea for you to share information on social media where your friends and family members will read it. But if your social circle is mostly people who agree with you, and you really want to spread information to people who think or vote differently than you do, you'll need to find a different tool to do that. I'm often asking people to develop a level of self-awareness about the goal. A lot of people think their goal is to change hearts and minds, but really their goal is to feel righteous. And I'm not judging them but I am asking them to become more aware of the goal because you'll never reach your goal until you first become aware of it and choose the right strategy to match your goal. So if you say your goal is to spread information, but you keep avoiding difficult conversations, well, are you really achieving your goal? If you say your goal is to protect yourself from harm, 
but you keep provoking arguments with people who have no willingness to change, are you really achieving your goal? If you say that your goal is to promote economic equity and reduce discrimination, but you spend your precious and limited time just reading lots of books about it, are you really achieving your goal? Become self-aware and then choose the tool wisely. You know, people often misunderstand how to match a goal to a tool. I see this all the time. For example, I'm really active with the Women's March organization. They have a national office or headquarters, but I have somewhat of a leadership role in Philadelphia where I live. And in 2017, when we started the annual march, people argued, marching doesn't lead to change. What are you really accomplishing with this march? What are your demands? Um, okay, the people who were at the helm of the Women's March back then and still today are people with like 15 to 35 years of experience with organizing and mobilizing communities. I think they are fully aware of how marches work. (laughs) The goal of the march was not to affect some kind of immediate change. If it were, that would have been ridiculous. The goal of the march when it started in 2017 was to show a sign of unity and power. The goal was to show the incoming administration that we were too big in size to be ignored. And it was really, really powerful. And it didn't matter how many people laughed at the pink hats that we wore. It didn't matter how many hecklers showed up to tease us. It didn't matter how many times Fox News tried to vilify us. All of that only proved our point, which was that you have to pay attention to us and we cannot be ignored. That was the goal. And a march is a perfectly good tool to use when your goal is to show someone that you have a lot of people behind you. I had a client who felt really inspired by the uprising over the summer related to the murder of George Floyd and countless others. She made an appointment with me and in her initial outreach, she wrote, I wanna do the work to eliminate racism, but I know I'm not doing enough. So we met and we were exploring all the tools available to her. And almost everything I mentioned, she would say, well, that sounds good, but I don't think I'm ready for that yet. Or I wanna learn more before I do that. Finally, I said, should we rethink your goal? It sounds like you like the idea of eliminating racism in the world, and maybe that's your ultimate goal, but your more immediate goal is to do some inner work on yourself, right? And she agreed. And that completely changed the set of tools that I recommended to her. Most of the advocates who I coach come to me because somebody has made them feel like they're not doing enough. Their donations aren't enough. Their protest art isn't enough. Their door-to-door campaigning isn't enough. And then I remind them, most famous activist in the world had a lane and they stayed in it. 
Martin Luther King, for example, advocated for racial equality. I've never in my life heard someone complain that Martin Luther King didn't do enough to save the environment or protect people with disabilities. No, he had a lane. He stayed in his lane and everybody gets that. So why do we feel like we need to touch every issue out there and that we need to pull every lever in front of us? Nope. Create a mission and fulfill it but fulfill it with the right tools for you. But what are the other tools? Well, there are likely hundreds or even thousands of options for how people can promote change or help a cause or help a community. But here are, I don't know, like 30 or 40 that come to mind for me. There's political campaigning. You can conduct ethical research. You can host inclusive meetings about decision-making. You can build inclusive decision-making boards. You can start recognizing your own biases. You can take direct action. You can read books and articles, watch documentaries, and educate yourself. You can attend pride campaigns, events, and parades. You can participate in internet activism. You can join an accountability circle. You can make donations to causes that matter to you. You can participate in your own therapy to help whatever internalized depression you may have. You can offer workshops to educate people. You could be a good parent. You could have difficult conversations. You can be an active bystander. You can update company mission statements. You can use visual affirmation in the workplace or in brochures. You can support or participate in performance theater or create protest art, or build monuments, or destroy monuments, go to sit-ins and demonstrations. Hey, you could do a hunger strike if that's your style. You could do a boycott or a moral purchasing act. You can do media activism. You can create equitable policies and procedures in workplaces and community organizations. You can lobby the government. You can petition for change. You can vote. Folks, there is more than one right way to advocate for change. You can do this your way. But here's what I recommend to the people who I coach. They come to me and say, I'm really passionate about this thing, but I'm stuck. I don't know how I could possibly help. The, the problem just feels too big and too daunting. And I say, here are five things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to decide what you really care about. Write it down and it should be something that fires you up enough, that compels you enough, that you would dedicate the next five to 10 years of your life to it. What is that? Number one is write that down. Number two, create a specific goal or a mission statement or both, but get really specific about what it is you want to do with this thing that fires you up. Number three, based on that goal or mission statement, choose one tool that you feel confident you can do Maybe it's boycotting, for example, and choose one tool that would bring you a little outside of your comfort zone. Maybe it's political campaigning, for example. Number four, then decide if this is something you want to do globally, nationally, statewide, in your own town, in your own family, or within yourself. And number five is begin doing it. Begin. Get started. No one's asking you to solve all the world's problems in a day. 
but starting is a noble act. I also just wanted to add that sometimes we try our hardest to be really good change makers, and it can be frustrating when you come across folks who make really cheap arguments and make your life a lot harder than it needs to be. You certainly do not need to engage with every person in the world who is opposing your efforts. I would, of course, pick your battles. But I've been compiling a list of those cheap arguments that I sometimes encounter, and I wanted to share them with you because it might be helpful if you can start to watch out for these cheap arguments. My, my bigger list is like 12 to 15 items long, but I'm going to highlight about five or six of them for you here just kind of quickly. The first one is the ad hominem. I usually say that one incorrectly. I practiced many times. It's This is the case when someone's trying to argue with you, but rather than arguing very carefully constructed points, they just use insults to throw at you. Like if person A makes a claim, and then rather than crafting a wise argument, person B laughs at person A's poor grammar or something. It's just a weak argument. Watch out for that and don't let people get away with it. Another one is the straw man argument. In the straw man argument, someone attacks a position the opponent doesn't even really hold. Instead of contending with the actual argument, he or she attacks a point that nobody was even making. An example would be if someone said, ugh, environmentalists are delusional if they think we can solve all of our ecological problems by driving a Prius. Look, I know a lot of environmental activists and none of them are trying to claim that a Prius is the answer to all of our problems. If someone tries to frame your position for you, point it out. Say, that is not the position I hold. You have redesigned my position to make it easier for you to argue against me. That's the straw man argument. Sometimes people appeal to ignorance. This is the third one on our list. Naturally, we are all ignorant of many things. But it's cheap and manipulative to allow this unfortunate aspect of being a human to do the heavy lifting in an argument. So to appeal to ignorance isn't proving anything except that you don't know something. A pretty classic example would be something like, well, no one's ever been able to prove definitely that uh, aliens exist, so they must not be real. Or even the opposite. No one's been able to prove definitely that aliens do not exist, so they must be real. If the same argument strategy can support mutually exclusive claims, then it's not a good argument strategy. Ignorance is a weak argument to use for making large claims. Watch out for that. People who rely on this type of argument just don't really feel like doing the hard work of constructing a real argument. And you may not want to waste your time debating this person. The fourth one on the list is the false dichotomy. Now, I talk about this a lot. Um, this has come up in other episodes as well. This line of reasoning fails by limiting the options to two when there were, in fact, more options to choose from. Uh, sometimes there are a whole range of options. I remember asking a student of mine to be more thoughtful and sensitive with her word choice and speech in some online discussions. And she said, I don't know how to watch every single word I say. That's ridiculous. Somehow, asking her to be thoughtful about particularly triggering or hurtful words made her think she must be careful about 100% of her words, like it's all or nothing. 
This was not an all or nothing thing. She turned it into a false dichotomy. All right, quickly, the fifth one on my list is the bandwagon fallacy. You've heard of this before. The bandwagon fallacy assumes something is true or right or good just because other people agree with it. Watch out for this argument and don't get wrapped up in it. Set some boundaries there. If you hear someone saying, well, most people believe this or most people say it's true or a lot of my friends say so, you know what? I would draw a line right there and say, we're not really having an argument, are we? This is a fallacy. Last one I'm going to cover, and, and maybe on the website or something, I will post the longer list. But the last one is the good old, <laughs> this is my favorite, the good old slippery slope argument. Um, you know, you may have used this when you were a teenager and your parents didn't want to let you go out. And you said something like, but you have to let me go to the party. If I don't go to the party, I'll be a loser with no friends. And the next thing you know, I'll be alone and jobless and living in your basement when I'm 30. <laughs> the slippery slope fallacy works by moving from a seemingly benign premise or a starting point and working through a number of small steps to a pretty improbable extreme. Um, and, and this usually suggests some kind of unlikely or ridiculous outcome when really there's just not enough evidence to, to link these things. It's hard enough to prove one thing is happening or has happened. It's even harder to prove a whole series of events will happen. When people use the slippery slope argument, I might just ask them, okay, so is the slippery slope the only position you have on this? And I might just check to see, do you have another route you could take with this argument? Because slippery slope alone is just not impressive to me. Um, this is unlikely going anywhere. As I said, folks, I started to construct this list of what I call just kind of weak or problematic lines of argumentation. And, and I find it helpful here in our conversation about being an advocate or being an activist, because when you put yourself out there, people will test you, people will push back, people will argue with you, and that's okay, it's healthy. I love when I can have a really healthy argument with someone who disagrees with me, and I, I especially love it when that person has good argumentation skills because it makes me sharpen my argument. It, it forces me to get my ducks in a row. It forces me to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> so it can be helpful and it can reveal the holes in my own arguments. But when I find myself engaged in one of these tough conversations with someone who's leaning on some pretty weak arguing skills, I tend to pull back. I tend to realize this may be a waste of my energy or my sanity or my time. And maybe I could put all of this energy and headspace and heart space into something more productive. And so I've learned how to watch out for these weak lines of argument and call them what they are. Maybe I don't necessarily use the word weak, but I might say to someone, it seems like you're more interested in insulting me or my friends rather than picking apart this argument. 
or it seems like you're really stuck on some false dichotomies. It seems like you're most interested in constructing some improbable slippery slope. I think that I may bow out of this conversation and it helps me. It helps me know when to set some boundaries. And and it's a it's a pretty important distinction because I don't just bow out of an argument because I'm losing. I don't just bow out of an argument because it got uncomfortable. I bow out when the person I'm arguing with isn't engaging in a fair fight. And I know how to say, okay, I'm done here. This isn't a fair fight. You're playing a little dirty, (laughs) you know, and no one's really being helped here. So why don't we just have some beers and let it go and not, not go down this path? It, to me, understanding these, these weak argument styles that you may encounter is safety planning. It's safety planning for me. It helps me identify who's really engaging with me in a way that is helpful and kind and moving us all forward as a, as a, as a human race, as a society, versus who just wants to feel good about themselves and hasn't really done the work that I have done. And so this is really an act of safety planning, safety planning and boundary setting. I hope you consider trying this out. Folks, please keep me posted on how this goes for you. You know, we can all make a difference in the areas that really matter to us. But you don't have to carry all the world's problems on your back. You're not the only helper out there. Just do your part. I hope you decide to check out the podcast next week when we hear from Julie Gehring. She's going to speak about well-meaning volunteerism. And we'll be talking about many of the same things that we've been covering in the first two parts of the series. As always, you can contact me using my email address, kate at onlytryingtohelp.com. That's kate, K-A-T-E, at onlytryingtohelp.com. Or you can follow the podcast on social media using at I was O-T-T-H. O-T-T-H stands for only trying to help. So the handle is at I was O-T-T-H. Hope to hear from you on social media. Please be well, folks. 